This episode was sponsored by Girls Can Crate, a subscription box inspiring girls to believe they can be and do anything. Real women make the best heroes, and every month they deliver them. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Katie. Hey. Do you get in many Facebook arguments? Uh, more than I would like to. <laughs> like, like how many? How many arguments in the past couple of weeks? Uh, let's see. It's been a, a somewhat argumentative week for me. Okay. Probably like four. Why do you do it? That's the question that I ask myself <laughs> on a regular basis. Uh, I was actually just having this conversation with my students that sometimes I'm making tactical decisions that I know there's no hope of ever convincing this person that I'm arguing with, but that I know there are people watching, and so I'm mostly just saying things so that other people might see me say them. Yeah, I think there's a real public element to, like, all Facebook fights. Mm -hmm. I mean, on the most basic level, you're debating something with one or two people, but what's really going on is you're having a debate with one or two people under the watchful gaze of a large number of people. Oh, yeah. Right? Really, it's more of a performance than a conversation. Mm. And the problem is, whoever you're arguing with simply won't acknowledge that you know more than them. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, everybody who's arguing thinks, of course, right. they are right. Come on, man. I know better than you. And that seems to me like it's at the root of every Facebook fight. Oh, yeah. We tend to think of this as a distinctly modern problem. Yeah. It's, you know, it's an aspect of the me generation and the public nature of Facebook and our unprecedented life in the public eye. Yeah. But the best guide, the best example that I've ever found of how to handle a Facebook debate <laughs> is in the story of Gargi Vachaknavi a woman who lived in India about 2,700 years ago. Ooh. <laughs> she entered a public debate about ideology, much like every Facebook debate that happens today, uh, and it was staged in front of a crowd. Huh. And she didn't, boom, throw down an epic victory, destroying her opponent. Mm. What she did was much more clever than that. Wow. I'm Katie Nelson. And I'm Olivia Mickle. And this is What's Her Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. Gargi Vachaknavi is one of the great intellectual figures in Hinduism. Cool. I already love her. <laughs> to learn about her... I spoke to Professor Ravi Gupta, who specializes in ancient Hinduism. Cool. Uh, so my name is uh, Ravi Gupta, and I'm the Charles Red Chair of Religious Studies here at Utah State University. Professor Gupta learned about Gargi Vachaknavi as a young boy, because in Hindu tradition, she's immensely famous. Hmm. I have known about her uh, for as long as I can remember, uh, actually. I, I, I can't recall the first time I heard about her. And the reason for that is because Gargi is an immensely popular figure uh, in Hinduism today. And I grew up in a Hindu family in Boise, Idaho. 
And, you know, part of my childhood was hearing stories about heroes and characters and persons from uh, the, the past, sometimes the ancient past. We know about Gargi Vachaknavi because of an ancient book. Uh, an ancient Sanskrit text uh, called the Brihad Aranyaka Upanishad. Now, it's, that's a mouthful. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually a, a collection of short texts. They reflect about ultimate questions and um, human concerns, but they do so in a way that could be called philosophical or could be called religious. That split between philosophy and religion that happened in the West never really took place in India. Now, um, the earliest of the Upanishads uh, were written in prose between the 6th and the 8th centuries BCE. So we're talking a long time ago. These are pre-Buddhist and pre-Jain texts before the time of the Buddha and of Mahavira. Uh, so uh, kind of the one of the, the earliest sets of sacred literature from India. And how do these texts survive? Um, Sanskrit texts were set to certain meters or rhythms and that made them easier to memorize. And that's how oral tradition works and has worked for thousands of years in so many different cultures. If you have it set to a certain rhythm, then you just know it. So I thought maybe to illustrate this, I could ask you to complete some poems. I'll give you the first line of a poem and we'll see if you have it memorized. Okay. Blackbird singing in the dead of night. Take Take these broken wings and learn to fly. You know it. You had that I one do. memorized. Okay, let's try another one. Ra ra ah 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 roma roma ma ga ga ooh la la. Want your bad romance? Yes. <laughs> what you gonna do with all that junk? All that junk inside your trunk? Yes. See, people memorize long poems all the time. The power of that meter yeah. and the rhythm which just sears it into your skull when you, you didn't real, really realize it. Anyway, I think you get my point. Yes. <laughs> so this is how oral tradition works. And these ancient texts were memorized to certain meters over the course of centuries. Sanskrit is India's ancient language. It's kind of like Latin or Greek uh, was for Europe. Sanskrit is for India. Uh, All of Hinduism's major sacred literature were written in the Sanskrit language. And it's it's a a member of the Indo-European language family. So in other words, it is a sister of Latin and Greek. And therefore, it's the great aunt of English and German and French and Spanish and Italian and Portuguese and all of those languages. Uh, And so the reason I mention this is because the culture of the Upanishads, uh, and much of the culture of Hinduism is an Indo-European culture and religion and language. So there are a lot of similarities, more than people realize. Languages shape not just how we talk, but how we see the world. It gives us the categories by which to understand our culture and our religion and all of that. And because these languages are shared, uh, they're, they're related, rather, across the world, Uh, we actually share more in modes of thinking between India and Europe and and the West than people uh, realize. Uh, I think that's important to note because Hinduism on the surface looks very, very foreign. 
Now, the cool thing is that Professor Gupta speaks Sanskrit. Ooh. And when I asked him, could you just say some Sanskrit text for us? I thought maybe he'd get out a book and he'd dust it off and he'd read it for us. But instead, he just sat back and said, sure. And then he busted out this. Chintamani prakara sadma sukalpa vriksha Lakshavriteshu surabhira bhipalayantam Lakshmi sahasra shatasambrama sevyamanam Govindamadi purusham tamaham bhajami Govindamadi purusham tamaham bhajami Here's another meter called Shardula Vikriritam, which means the play of a tiger. And it's really, well, you'll hear the spirit of it, and then maybe you can see why it's called the play of a tiger. Janmadhyasya yaton vayade taratash, charthesva bhignyaswarat, tene brahma hridaya adikavaye, muhyanti yatsuraya. It's a playful meter, right? But it's someone playing who's strong and powerful, like a tiger, who's got a heavy step because you can hear the thump, thump, thump that Mm. goes with it. Can I do one more? Please. Just because I love doing this. Yes. And uh, this is uh, my favorite meter. Uh, It's called Mandakranta, which means ambling along. And it provides the image of like a, a brook or a stream that ambles along slowly and occasionally goes down some rapids and goes a little fast and then starts ambling again. Okay. Um, it goes like this. Naham vande tavacharanayor dvandvamadvandvaheto Naham vande tavacharanayor dvandvamadvandvaheto Kumbhi pakam gurumapi hare narakam napanetum Ramya Rama Mridutanulata Nandane Napirantum Ramya Rama Mridutanulata Nandane Napirantum Bhave Bhave Hridaya Bhavane Bhavaye Bhavantum Bhave Bhave Hridaya Bhavane Bhavaye Bhavantum Wow. Yeah. You got tears in your eyes. My tech guy at this point was moved to tears. Wow. So let's talk Hinduism. Yay. I asked Professor Gupta to give us a Hinduism in five minutes or less. <laughs> okay. So um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I grew up in Boise, Idaho. We were one of very few Hindu families uh, for in, in town at that time. Now there's a larger community. Uh, but I was asked to do this very often. Uh, was oh, kind of a synopsis of, of Hinduism. And I think that's part of what propelled me on this journey of, first of all, having to articulate who I am and my background, and then eventually realizing that I could study this stuff and then ending up doing a lifetime of articulating myself as a professor. Right. So <laughs> anyway, your question, in other words, is not is not as crazy as it might seem. Um, so uh, so for a summary, uh, basically, 
Hinduism is a very recent term. It refers to a family of religious traditions more than a single religion uh, because it was created to, that word was created to refer to all the religious life, lives and approaches of the uh, native people of the Indian subcontinent by outsiders. Now the term is adopted by Hindus as well, but it's not found anywhere in Hindu sacred texts or, or scriptures or anything. So it's difficult to, to summarize Hinduism, but here are a few of the major threads. Most Hindus share the notion, the, the belief in, a, in, an, in an inner essence, a spiritual essence that constitutes who we are. This is called the Atma or the Atman. It's the self. It's the inner spiritual essence that is the same in every living being, whether it be human or animal or even plant. Anything that is alive and has the ability to feel pain and joy and struggle for survival shares this spiritual essence which allows it to be conscious, the Atma. That Atman is connected to Brahman or ultimate reality, um, the, the sum total of all consciousness in this world, the ground of all our being. Many, many Hindus regard that ultimate reality as a person, as God, and they would give that Brahman, or they would refer to him uh, or, or, or her as a specific deity, like Vishnu or Shiva or Devi. Uh, I, I said him or her because Hindus uh, have described God as both male and female. And so Hinduism is one of the few traditions, living religions in the world that has maintained and strengthened its ancient practices of goddess worship to the present day. So um, other key elements are the belief in rebirth, reincarnation, uh, the fact that that eternal self has not been around just this one time, but many, many times. And our next destination is shaped by our karma. Uh, that is, we shape our future destination by the type of life we live now. The last thing I would mention is the idea of moksha or liberation, that despite the cyclical nature of time and rebirth in this world, we're all uh, want to be working towards a place of permanence, a place of eternal existence, uh, of moksha. And many Hindus would think of this as a personal place, a kingdom of God, where we live in eternal relationship with him. And others would think of this more as an abstract state of peace and, and enlightenment. I, I think one important thing to recognize is that the fundamental problem for Hindus, of the, the fundamental problem of the human condition mm -hmm. is not evil, but ignorance. Everything is born from the problem of ignorance. Mm -hmm. The fact that we, we do not recognize what is our natural state of being. And so that recognition leads automatically then to all kinds of other things like morality and you know, um, uh, freedom from suffering. But the fundamental challenge is, how do we know, right? Uh, how do we free ourselves from the ignorance that grips us? And so in philosophical terms, epistemology is crucial for, uh, for Hindus. So, it's perhaps then not surprising that the Upanishad features lots of philosophical debate about the nature of reality huh. and 
uh, how we can know the truth of the universe. And it's in this context that we meet Gargi Vachaknavi. So when we meet Gargi for the first time, we're in the court of a king named Janaka. Uh, Janaka is, throughout the history of Hinduism, one of the most famous and loved kings. He plays a very important role in later Hindu stories as well. But here, he's the, the, the ultimate patron of philosophy and the intellectual life, and he has invited everyone to come together for a philosophical debate. It's an intellectual Olympics of sorts. And the goal is to see who is the most intelligent of all the Brahmins or the priests, uh, the thinkers and philosophers present there. And he stands there and he says, whoever is the smartest, the most brilliant amongst all of you can drive away these 1,000 cows, okay? And each cow is going to have 10 uh, gold coins tied to each horn. And 1,000 cows with gold coins is a huge deal. Mm-hmm. Now, everyone's hesitant, right? I mean, who wants to call themselves the smartest? That's a, that's a pretty arrogant stance to take. But the one person amongst this group uh, named Yagnya Valkya, uh, he is confident. And he just, he tells his student, he says, drive away all these cows. And the other Brahmins immediately object to this and say, they ask him, you really think you're the smartest? So this kind of launches this debate right away. There's no niceties, no introductions. It just thrusts everyone in the heat of the debate and everyone jumps in one at a time to debate Yagnyavalkya. So he becomes, he not only shows his, uh, his cunning, but he be- makes himself the center of the debate. Each one of these philosophers debates with him one after another, asking him all kinds of different questions about the nature of the self, the nature of ultimate reality, the ground of our being. And he's able to successfully answer everyone's questions to a point where they have no other questions. And he silences them. So... Gargi enters the debate. There's no introduction uh, to her. Uh, This is significant because the text doesn't seem to note or apologize for the fact that she's a woman. The reason that's significant is because we do find in later literature, often when a woman takes a role that is generally taken by men in that social situation or in that scene, then the text will attempt to explain why she's participating, right? She was unusually brilliant, or she was the wife of someone who was a key player in that scene, or etc. So there's no apology for her presence here. And um, a lot of people have read into this to say that women's roles were uh, more uh, flexible, uh, more open, Uh, Their voices were stronger in this very early period. That's perhaps too much to extrapolate from a few different incidents that we have, but it is noteworthy Mm -hmm. that that the text uh, doesn't seem to apologize for her presence. Let's pause for just a second to thank our sponsor, Girls Can Crate. 
Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. Girls Can Crate is changing the way we think about toys. Every crate features an inspiring woman with a booklet about her and hands-on STEAM activities. They're really cool. Go to girlscancrate.com and use the code HERNAME, all one word in all caps. You'll get 20% off your first month's crate of any subscription that you order. That's girlscancrate, C-R-A-T-E, dot com. And enter the coupon code HERNAME, all caps. This is, this is how she begins her question. She says, Yagnya Valkya, tell me, since this whole, whole world is woven back and forth on water, on what then is water woven back and forth? Okay? So this language of woven back and forth, she's basically asking, what's the foundation of the things that we see? What underlies the reality around us? She starts with water because it's such a crucial element. And... Yagnivalkya says, well, water is founded on air, which is yet more subtle. And she says, well, what's air founded on? And he gives uh, the answer of space, um, kind of empty space as the foundation of it. And she says, well, what's that founded on? And they go on and on and on for several more paragraphs until they reach the realm of the gods. And she keeps asking, well, what are the gods founded on? Well, the king of the gods, well, what's he founded upon? What's he woven back and forth on? And he finally answers with Brahman. Now, Brahman is uh, a Sanskrit term for ultimate reality. Uh, the, The essence that inhabits you and me and all beings, living and even non-living, she persists and says, well, what's Brahman woven back and forth upon? What's the basis of Brahman? It's like asking, where did, who created God? Mm-hmm. And at this point, Yagnivalkya uh, stops and actually utters a threat. He says, don't ask too many questions, Gargi, or your head will shatter apart. Now, this is very interesting because it's the first person in the debate who's actually been threatened rather than simply um, silenced by intellectual power. Uh, And so Gargi should should be backing down at this point, right? Feeling a sense of fear, uh, feeling threatened. Uh, She She falls falls silent. silent. And the interesting thing is that this is where the Wikipedia page on Gargi Vajaknavi basically ends the story. They say she acknowledges his intellectual superiority and she says, you are the winner of the debate. But that's not it at all. The crucial part of the story comes next, as Professor Gupta tells us. She's thinking maybe... Hmm, I'm going to have to take a different tack here. She's she's shifting gears. Meanwhile... Someone else jumps into the debate. It's a senior male Brahmin. Uh, Udalaka is his name. And he, he jumps in to question Yagnivalkya, like the others have. But what's interesting is that he starts off his questioning by reminding Yagnivalkya about someone they had met a long time ago who was 
a woman. And he says, you remember that woman a long time ago that we learned something awesome from? And it seems to be that his, his role in the story is to say, you can learn from a woman. We have met a smart woman before. <laughs> she was possessed by a Gandharva. Now, a Gandharva is kind of like an angelic angel-type being. Almost as if he's trying to give Yagnavalkya a reason for why he should be willing to listen to the voices of women, despite the fact that they're not normally part of the circle of priestly activities in the way that Gargi is. So there's this fascinating workaround for sexism in in this tradition. Yeah. That you don't have to listen to women generally. But if a woman is possessed, then mm. that shakes everything up. Even people of the lowest social status, if they're possessed, they could be the enlightened one. Wow. You know, so the poorest people and women and all the lowly sorts, if they're possessed, then we can listen to them without our pride being offended. Cool. I, I guess it, it, it allows the men in the story to kind of swallow the fact that yeah. they are um, uh, learning from a woman who would otherwise be uh, socially a student or right. not, you know, whose voice would not be heard. Mm. So after this happens, Udalaka's uh, had his little debate and been silenced by Yagnivalkya. Then Gargi Vachaknavi comes back. But she's not going head to head with him anymore. She knows she's never going to get through to him that way. She's never going to win that way in a head-to-head -head debate. So she pivots. She does something extraordinary in this debate. She turns from Yagnivalkya to the others in the room. She addresses the assembly rather than her opponent. She says, distinguished Brahmins, I am going to ask this man, namely Yagnivalkya, two questions. If he can give me the answers to them, none of you will be able to defeat him in theological debate. Now, note what she's just done here. So far, who was on the hot seat? It was her, right? She was the one who had to spar with Yagnivalkya and see which one of them emerged victorious. But by now turning to the assembly... She's turned herself from opponent into the judge and she can't possibly lose now. Wow. <laughs> that is so brilliant. Because now she says, I know the answers to these questions, essentially. They are the, the most difficult questions anyone could possibly ask. Therefore, she puts herself in the role of, say, a teacher. She is going to decree whether his answer is good enough. Oh, man. And she's saying, I already know. <laughs> and I will now declare to you, the audience, whether he knows. Wow. So she turns the whole thing on its head. And it's also brilliant because she also is kind of his ally now instead of his opponent. Right. She's, you know, she could potentially be like, yes, you are a genius. And then they're equals. Yeah. They're, they could be allies in the future. Uh, so I'm, she's a genius. I'm taking notes here. <laughs> <laughs>
Now, I want to mention something here in regard to that. The text doesn't elaborate on her move in the way that I just did. If, if you're a close reader, you can see the impressive way in, she, in, in which she's pivoting herself here. But this is, this is something crucial to understand about ancient sacred texts. We don't know much about Gargi outside of what is described of her in this text. What's interesting is that these... Uh, ancient texts often tell us more about the characters, particularly female characters, in their stories than the texts themselves realize they're doing. And this is, I think, something generally true about reading for women's voices in uh, sacred literature, uh, in any kind of scripture, in, in fact, around the world, is that we have to be willing to read between the lines. Uh, often, what you see between the lines is as powerful or more powerful than what you, what is actually explicitly said. Also, silence is often very powerful, right? And so I made a somewhat of an argument from silence at, earlier on when I said there's no apology made for her presence. That's an argument from silence. Uh, nothing is said, but that in itself speaks volumes to us because in other contexts we would expect something to be said about it, right? So this is part of the thing in, in reading these is we often, the texts give away more to us about female characters than I think they themselves realize they're actually doing. So that's what's fun about, about reading these from a, a gendered perspective. Okay, so this is how she introduces herself. After she addresses the assembly, then she turns back to Yagnivalkya and she says, I rise to challenge you, Yagnivalkya, with two questions. Much as a fierce warrior of Kashi or Videha, stringing his unstrung bow and taking two deadly arrows in his hand would rise to challenge an enemy. Give me the answers to them. So what, what are the two questions that will prove he's a genius? Well, she's so clever. I love it. She, her first question, she just repeats the same question that she left off with before when he threatened her. <laughs> same question. And she says, The things above the sky and the things ab- below the earth and the things between the earth and the sky, as well as all those things people here refer to as past, present, and future, on what Yagnavalkya are all these woven back and forth. And Yagnivalkya says, all of this is grounded on space. She answers this by saying, all honor to you, Yagnivalkya. You really cleared that up for me. Thank you. That cleared it right up in a very sarcastic tone. <laughs> She's dripping with sarcasm at this point. Like, what a foolish answer. It's all based on space. I can see that, right? It's all existing within space. What's new? And then she says, get ready for question two. And question two is simply question number one again. (laughs) She knew knew he was going to dodge. And so she said at the very outset, I'm going to ask him two questions, knowing that she was going to have to repeat her first question again. So all the while setting herself up as this kind of all-knowing person, right? (laughs) Wow. 
And it's the second time when Yagnyavalkya finally gives up the answer that he's been holding back in all of the dialogues up to this point, where he gives this beautiful discourse on the nature of Atman or the self, the eternal spiritual self that's present within each being, uh, all living beings, whether human or non-human, and that unites everything and, and everyone. And this is one of the signature teachings of this Upanishad. It's, it's not made of matter. It, is, it has no um, caste or, or, or race or background or, or gender. It's the eternal spiritual essence uh, of which the only symptom is uh, consciousness. It is the source of our awareness, of our ability to look at ourselves and think reflexively. It's the essence of life. And it's beyond any physical attributes, labels that we might put upon our body, um, rich or poor, young or old, you know, all of those sorts of things. But the plot hinges on her now. It's not really his answer isn't the climax. Her judgment is the climax. Right. Everybody turns to her. Is he right? Tell us, Gargi Vachaknavi, is he right? Was that the good answer? Yes, she says. He is right. None of you will ever defeat him wow. in debate. It's wonderful. Yeah, that is brilliant. <laughs> So she says, she says, look, the debate's over, right? You're all going to lose. This guy's won. And her judgment, the text supports her judgment because everyone falls silent. And just except for one man, Vidagda Shakalya, ventures forth and decides he's going to actually not listen to the judgment and challenge Yagnivakya once more. And he's like, I got this. I could still win this debate. Yagnavalkya threatens him in the same way that he did Gargi Vachaknavi by saying, don't ask too many questions or your head will explode. (laughs) And the man doesn't heed his warning, carries on with his questions, and his head explodes. Literally? His head literally explodes? (laughs) His head literally explodes. That's amazing. So, and and just to make sure that we understand it was literal, they say that, that, that after it did, robbers came and picked up the pieces. Wow. To sell the pieces? or <laughs> I don't know. It's very odd. Very odd. Apparently his brain was worth a lot or whatever. That's the story. Why do they want pieces of his head? I don't yeah. Is there a no, black market in skull fragments? <laughs> wow. But that's a wonderful twist because it's sort of... You think that it's metaphorical, like like when you're yeah. studying and you're like, oh, my brain's going to explode. But then somebody's brain really does explode. So <laughs> that's the story. That's the story. <laughs> Which also solidifies even more. See, she could deal with it. Precisely. Her head didn't blow up. Yeah. So maybe... Next time we find ourselves in a Facebook debate, (laughs) we could ask ourselves, what would Gargi do? (laughs) 
learn more about Gargi Vachaknavi or get a copy of the amazing Hindu Upanishads, head to our website, whatshernamepodcast.com. Also, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of relevant images each week. Special thanks to Ravi Gupta. Music was performed by the Navatman Music Collective, Namisha Shankar, Vinod Prasanna, and Ashok Pathak. Links to that music can be found on our website, and they are freely downloadable. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith, who also recorded this episode on site. To make more episodes happen, click Donate on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com. Thank you.